Chapter 30, Section 2 of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Caron. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 2, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 30. The World Under the Empire. Politics, Philosophy, Religion, and Art. Section 2. Philosophy and Philosophers The later Greek philosophies which subordinated theory to practice and pursued knowledge mainly as a means to happiness had been introduced at Rome in the 2nd century B.C. Cicero made a special study of them, and his numerous treaties contributed largely to making the Latin world familiar with the tents of the Stoics and the Epicureans, the Academicans, the Peripatics, and the Septics, the three last-named schools, although they possessed considerable interest in the special history of philosophy, were not prominent under the empire, and did not at this time exercise much influence on the spiritual development of mankind. The Peripatics, who were the most important of the three, chiefly confined themselves to the exposition of the writings of Aristotle. But Stoicism and Euphuism claim our attention as representing an important side of the spiritual life of our period. The Epicurean school held that the supreme good was happiness, and that happiness consisted in pleasure. Virtue, they said, has no value except in so far as it is a means to enjoying pleasure. But the wise man will seek pleasure for the whole of life, not merely for the moment. Hence he will reject many momentary pleasures, which may entail pains afterwards. And he will pay greater attention to the pleasures of hope and memory, and to spiritual joy, than to sensual pleasures. The supreme good is thus reduced to a mental condition of tranquility, which nothing can shake, and this condition is impossible, according to Epicurus, without the practice of virtue, and especially of temperance. Above all, man must learn not to fear death, and not to be superstitious. The Epicureans adopted the atomic theory of the universe, and did not believe in the existence of the gods, or of a guiding providence. Their theories were presented to the Roman world in the great poem of Lucretus, who came forward as a champion against the terrors of religion under the empire. The school continued to exist and attracted those who desired to lead a tranquil life and were repelled by the asturist system of the Stoics. Horace, who called himself a peg of the drove of Epicurus, endeavored to realize this cheerful tranquillity, the Stoic philosophy, which was originated by Zeno and developed by Trisippus, based its system of morality on a physical theory of the universe. The Stoics held that all things are corporal. There is no spiritual as distinguished from material substance. Hence, they considered God and nature to be the same. God is the soul of nature, and nature the body of God. The universe is a whole of which all the parts are bound together by law in a rational order the parts are strictly subordinate to the whole no single thing is at liberty to isolate itself from this principle of the rational order of the world 
they deduced their ethics the supreme good some benun, for the individual is to live in harmony with the whole of which he is a part to live suitably to nature yavera contavera naturks this is virtue and virtue is the supreme tool hence the stoics reject pleasure as of no moral worth for it is merely a personal end of individual it, and has no part in the supreme good they also reject all external goods regarding them as morally indifferent such things may be used well or ill to be without them does not affect man's true happiness the only good is virtue and the only evil vice moreover they did not admit any decree in virtue and vice all good acts they said are equally right all bad acts equally wrong their ethics culminated in the paradoxical idea of the wise man he the perfect stoic philosopher knows everything he is the true lawgiver the true physician the true poet the true friend for he alone has true knowledge of all things human and divine he may have never stinched a shoe in his life but yet he is a good shoemaker he is only responsible to himself for his actions therefore he is lord of himself and king this ethical ideal of stoicism is the purest and original form made it exclusive and highly unpopular a philosophy which set up virtue as the sole good and accounted all other things as valueless could not be acceptable to ordinary people a system which upheld the absolute sovereignty of reason was not likely to spread widely and seneca who was essentially a man of compromise presents us with a much milder form of stoicism than that of his greek masters he then goes so far as to say that is that he is bust who is least bad like the older stoics he holds that the distinction between god and nature is not primary the ethical importance of god's providence he also goes further than they in making morality the man purpose of philosophy it is easy to see that the circumstances of the age influence the spirit of the stoic teaching the decadence of morals and the despotism of such emperors as cagula and nero made men tyke with great seriousness then problem of finding a firm vantage ground within the mind itself from which to defy fortune the feeling of human weakness was also brought home to men in new days and this produced a feeling of sympathy and indulgence which softened the rigorous principle of stoic sight of sufficingness we can mark these effects in the writings of seneca no one has taught with more enthusiasm than he to independence on the external tillings which philosophy can give the chief condition of happiness is contempt of death and no ancient philosopher has insisted more strongly on the importance of universal philanthropy, which does not exclude even the slave god he says dwells in the soul of a slave as well as in that of the knight musinus rufus a younger contemporary of seneca taught philosophy at rome in the reign of nero and vespasian and enjoyed a high reputation he was a friend of pastus thera and a member of the stoic party of opposition and was banished by nero in sixty five a d it has been mentioned before that he was honorably accepted 
when Vespasian ejected the philosophers from Rome. He seems to have been a man of strong nature, and to have exercised a great influence on his pupils in strengthening their moral character. Every one of us, said a distinguished pupil of his, thought as he sat listening that he was personally meant so vividly did our master bring the evil qualities of each home to him musinus did not introduce new doctrines the distinctive character of his teaching lay in emphasizing strongly and perhaps extravagantly special doctrines philosophy he said is the only way to virtue a philosopher and a good man are synonymous Musinus was the teacher of the celebrated Epictetus, a native of Hierapolis. In Phygra, a slave of Nero's freedman, Ephraproditus, he was lame and of weakly body. He hired the lectures of Musinus and devoted himself to philosophy. Afterwards, he acquired his freedom under Domitian. He was banished with the other philosophers from home and retired to Nicopolis where Orion was one of his pupils. Hence he is described by a modern poet as that halting slave who in Nicopoli taught Arian when Vespasian's brutal son cleared Rome of what most shamed him. Like Seneca and Mosuus, he laid the whole weight of philosophy in ethics. Socrates had taught that the beginning of philosophy is a painful consciousness of one's ignorance. Epictetus taught that the beginning of philosophy is a painful consciousness of one's weakness. In order to be good, a man must be convinced that he is evil. There are two rules for realizing happiness. The first is to bear with regulation all outward circumstances. The second is to renounce desires of outward things. These may be expressed in two words, Suslin and Abstain. He insists strongly on divine province, the paternal care of God for the world, and the faultless perfection of the universe. He tries to reconcile the popular religion with his philosophical pantheism by explaining the gods as subordinate beings derived from the supreme being. All things are full of gorals and demons. He seems to have believed in the immortality of the soul, though it is not clear what form his theory of his life after death assumed. He looks upon the soul as a stranger to the body, longing to leave it. Thou art a little soul, he said, bearing up a corpse. The brotherhood of mankind is a prominent feature of his teaching. Marcus Aurelius was a great admirer of the Epictetus, whom he follows closely. He neglects physics and dialectics and denies that much knowledge is necessary for leading the life of the wise man. The chief theories on which he builds up his ethical precepts are the doctrine which the Stoics derive from Heraclitus, that all things are in a constant flux, every moment passing into new form, and that, in this great stream of the world, the life of an individual is of absolutely no account. On the other hand, this eternal process of becoming is controlled by a supreme law, and serves the aims of supreme reason. Like Epictetus, he believes in gods, and even says that it would not be worth living in a world without gods. He also believes in spiritual revelations to men by means of dreams and prophecies. Perhaps the chief difference in the spirit between Marcus and Epictetus lies in the stronger emphasis. 
which the empire lays on the duties of the individual to society. In the first century B.C., the cynic philosophy seems to have been regarded as practically obsolete, but it was revived under the empire, and in Nero's sign we met a cynic named Demetrius of high repute, a great friend of Seneca and Theresa Pesutus. He was afterwards banished to an island by Vespasian. His principles differed little from those of the Serios. He only carried him out more unscrupulously and rudely. What chiefly distinguished the paractical aid of the Stoic from the Cynic teaching was that the Stoics admitted that of indifferent things some were desirable than others, whereas the Cynics rejected this distinction. In this matter, Capetitus had approximated to cynicism. The Cynics, who affected simplicity in matters like dress, did not wear tunics. Hence Juvenal describes the Stoic doctrines as differing only by the tunic from the Cynic. In the second century, Demonax was head of the Cynic school at Athens, and Lucian, who was no lover of philosophers, especially of Cynics, gives a favorable picture of his life and teaching. On the other hand, he gives a caricature of the Cynics in his description of the adventurer Pigibinus, who, after a dissolute youth, embraced Christianity, then became a cynic, and finally, in order to make himself notorious, cast himself into a funeral pyre at a celebration of the Olympian Games, 165 A.D. In the presence of a large concourse of spectators, it seems impossible, however, that the true Perigenius was a man of moral earnestness, who wished to enforce his views on the desirability of suicide by a striking example. The tone and spirit of these philosophies was much the same, however widely different their first principles, their systems, and their methods. Both Stoics and Epicureans believed that happiness is attainable in this life by a man's own efforts. When a man is educated by philosophy, to recognize that bodily pains are not real, and that the true self is independent of external circumstances, he attains to resignation and happiness. They agreed, consists in resignation. Knowledge makes a man free, for it makes him independent of circumstances. The precept of Epictetus, sustain and abstain, strikes the note of all these later philosophies. Men of serious and austere temperament were attracted to the porch of Chiripsippus, men of milder and weaker character to the garden of Epicurus. It is also observable that while the Epicureans held their own special tents, observably the Stoics and other schools mutually approximated their views. Cacatism, the combining of various doctrines, selected from different systems, was thus rendered easy. Those who professed adhesion to Plateau were quite ready to adopt the parts of the Stoic teaching, and Perpatetics were anxious to assimilate Aristotle to Plateau of this spirit of compromise, which was characteristic of the age. Plutarch was a typical example. In philosophy, his adherence to the academy was loose even for that very broad and dogmatic school it would be hard to say whether the number of Stoic dogmas which he rejects exceeds that which he quotes with approval. He will not adopt with Plateau the equally of the sexes, 
or with the Stoics, the injustice of slavery, or with the Pythagoreans, the rights of the lower animals to justice at the hands of men. Yet he goes a long way with all three magnifying the position and the dignity of the house-mother, both by example and precept, inculating everywhere kindness and consideration to slaves, adopting even vegetarian doctrines in some of his earlier treatises. Though Greek philosophy spread among the Romans and exercised considerable influence on their leading men, there was a certain lurking antipathy to it, the Roman character, which was never wholly removed. Both Ephyricans and Stoics taught their pupils to hold aloof from public life. Both likewise regarded celibacy as preferable to marriage. Musonius, indeed, was an exception. Here were points in which their teaching directly clashed with the interests of the community and which provoked aversion and contempt on the part of practical Romans. Tactitus suggests that the most common function of philosophy is to serve as a cloak for idleness, and he ridicules the unreasonable wisdom of the Stoic Musonus Rufus, who, when the Flavian army approached Rome, 69 A.D., went about among the maniples discoursing philosophy to the soldiers on the advantages of pace and the dangers of war. Quintilian opposed the practical statesman to the mere philosopher. Avitus Cassius ridiculed Marcus Aurelius for nib philosophical studies. But in the attitude adopted to philosophy, if not by the educated public, at all events by the government, up here is a marked difference between the first and second centimes of the empire. In the first century, philosophers are regarded with suspicion. Nero was not allowed to learn philosophy as a study likely to prove injurious to the character of a ruler. Seneca felt himself called upon to make an attempt to remove the prevailing prejudices and to show that philosophy was not inconsistent with the performance of public duties. The fact that most of the leading nobles, who under Nero and the Flavians were irreconcilable adversaries of the imperial government, were professed Stoics, may have had a good deal to do with the attitude of distrust which the emperors assumed towards philosophy. Stoicism became associated and identified with disloyalty. After Dominitan, there was a reaction and the emperors of the second century, from Trajan the soldier to Marcus the philosopher, favor and encourage philosophy. Under Marcus, it was fashionable even for women to study my subject, and men like the Stoic Junius Rusticus and the Perpetiac Claudius Severus held high and influential positions. Philosophers were always unpopular with the mass of the people. Their pretensions to superiority, their strict moral precepts, and their severe moral judgment made them disliked. Their weak points and their external appearance, the long beard, bare feet, coarse cloak of the Stoics were unsparingly ridiculed. Moreover, philosophy was despised as unproductive and useless. Perseus, in his satires, introduced centurions, mocking at philosophy as a useless art. Big Vulfians, gives a hoarse laugh and bids a bad farthing for a hundred greeks another laughs at the idea of growing pale or growing without of his breakfast in order to meditate on a sick man's dream 
that nothing arises out of nothing, and nothing returns into nothing. It need hardly to be said that the mercantile world agree with the centurions, the rich freedman, Trimachio, in the satyricon of Petronius, ordered that his epitaph could end with the words, he left thirty million sentences and never heard a philosopher. Philosophy was also despised and disliked by rhetoricians. The controversy which has been raised in modern times as to the respective educational values of classical literature and science has its parallel in the controversy which was vehemently waged under the empire between the merits of philosophy and rhetoric. The rhetoricians made little of philosophy and useless for practical purposes, just as votaries of science in the present century have been inclined to make little of the humanities. Quintilian mentions as a subject set for a declamation a man who had three children, an orator, a philosopher, and a physician, divided by property into four parts. Each son received a part, and the fourth was to belong to him, who was most useful to the state. Who is the fourth to be? The elder Seneca hated philosophy. In the second century, Aristides was a vehement defender of rhetoric versus philosophy, and Pronto shared the same antipathy to the favorite studies of his imperial pupil. Lucian makes out in his Hermotimus a striking case for the utter futility of philosophic pursuits. Another circumstance which gave philosophy a bad name was that she frequently served as a mask for vice. Men who pretended to be Stoics or Cynics, wearing long beards and professing extreme strictness, often led most dissolute livets, models of propriety, in public. They had shameless orgies at home. Many avaricious Scyphophants wore the guise of philosophers, nor were even the genuine professors of philosophy always above the suspicion of greed of gold. Aristides described them as a vicious class without a redeeming virtue. The towns of Greece swarmed with them. Everywhere, Lucian tells us, one meets in the streets their long beards, their rolls of books, their threadbare cloaks, and their big sticks. Poor cobblers and carpenters gave their shops to rove about the country as begging cynics, and the cynic school, which had gained a new lease of vitality under the empire, helped especially to bring philosophy into dispute. In the second century, the country was infested with begging philosophers, carrying scrip and staff like the begging monks of the Middle Ages. This trade was often adopted by runaway slaves, and the whole class was distinguished for shameless and filth. But although unpopular and mercilessly jibbed at, the philosophers exercised great influence, and the very existence of a multitude of serpious philosophers proves the repute which the true philosophers enjoyed. It was not uncommon among the better classes at Rome to retain a philosopher as a perpetual inmate of the house, to be consulted on all difficulties, somewhat like a father-confessor of modern times in this capacity, and as the heads of schools, and also as traveling missionaries, they exercised an important influence on public opinion. The teaching of all the schools tend to promote a cosmopolitan spirit. Epicurism, by its opposition to national sentiment and patriotism, cynicism by denying all bonds of family and country, sexism by the positive doctrine that all men are brothers, external circumstances, the immense traffic and lively intercourse 
which were kept up between the various peoples of the empire and its remotest provinces were favorable to cosmopolitanism we have not says seneca shut ourselves up in the walls of a city but opened an intercourse with the whole world we have declared ourselves citizens of the world it is clear that the growth of this spirit prepared mankind for the reception of the christian idea of human fellowship one of the most striking facts in the early empire was the frequency of suicide among the higher classes in rome no system of philosophy regarded self-destruction as a crime and the ancients in general did not look upon it with the same eye as modern societies in the age of the early caesars the doctrine was empathetically preached that it was each man's inalienable right to leave the world at pleasure the stoics who held that death was not an evil regarded the power of self-destruction as an estimable privilege familiarity with the bloody scenes in the area blunted men's horror of death and on the other hand the example of their hero cato catanus terrible letum made suicide popular with the aristocracy thus the discontented nobles were ready to engage in desperate conspiracies which had little chance of success and betake themselves to a voluntary death when the plot was discovered the admiration in which area the wife of Pesutus was held shows how honorably suicide was esteemed in the first century a d when her husband had sentenced him for conspiracing with the scribionus she determined to die with him and having given herself the first blow handed him the dagger saying it is not painful her relations had attempted to dissuade her from the, her resolution and when theresa her son-in-law asked her whether she would wish her daughter to destroy herself under similar circumstances she answered yes if she shall have lived with you as long and as harmlessly as i have with my patus when they kept watch over her actions she said you can make me die painfully but cannot hinder me from dying and leaping up dash your head against the wall i told you she said on recovering from the shock i would find a way of death however hard if you denied me an easy one the younger pliny tells the story with the greatest admiration end of chapter thirty section two recording by chris curran ham lake minnesota